I'm not supposed to be stuck. Seized. Disconnected. Lifeless. I was made for more than this. Not to stay, but to be restored by the one who designed me. Refined and renewed as he does his work. And then to be driven by a force, alive and connected to those around me, and working for something greater, propelling each other forward in motion, living rust-free and keeping speed, to be part of something bigger as I live out my purpose. I was made for this. I was made to grow. There was something about this man of God that when he prayed, it was like the heavens opened up and God just leaned down an ear to listen to him. His name is Jim Meredith. He's one of my spiritual giant heroes in my life. I met him back in 2009. He's 90 years young now, and he's one of my spiritual mentors. Back then, he was 78 years old, and he came out to Seoul, South Korea to meet me because I was getting ready to retire from the military. I was going to be a youth pastor. I sent my resume out all across the country to a bunch of different churches and organizations, and my resume landed on his desk at Military Community Youth Ministries. It's a branch of Young Life that actually serves military kids all around the world. It seemed like a perfect fit. So Jim came out and he interviewed me. It went great. He stayed with us for a week and he and I just were able to, to link up. We just have such a, a common background. And it, it was going so well and then he said these words. He says, Kip, you're a full colonel in the United States Army, but you're a private in God's army. We can help you with that. You need some spiritual maturity, though. You need to grow. And so we're in his hotel room in Seoul, South Korea. It overlooks uh, downtown Seoul. Just a beautiful view. And he kicks back. He folds his arms, and with his eyes wide open, he just starts praying. God, you're so good. Oh, what a great week this has been with Kip, with kids. And, and he starts talking about the kingdom of God being revealed. And I mean, it was simply amazing. And I'm sitting there watching him going, I, I want to be able to pray like that. Well, they offered me the job, and I wish I could say that I took the job because I, I didn't, and I took a, a job in a different church down in Oregon, and it just didn't work out. I often have regrets about that. I wish I could say that I now pray like my dear brother and mentor, Jim Meredith. I don't. I can't say that because I struggle with prayer. Not a good thing if you're a pastor. I struggle with prayer. Sometimes I feel like when I'm praying, I'm just spitting out words into the air. I'm praying and, and, and the words are just bouncing off the ceiling. And when that happens, I got to go back to Scripture. I got to go back and see how Jesus prayed, how he had this amazing relationship with God the Father that was revealed so much in prayer. How he taught his disciples how to pray, how the disciples would pray in the book of Acts and throughout all the New Testament. The Old Testament heroes, how they prayed and I have to remember that we do serve a loving, amazing, great father. Not an abusive father, but a father who wants to be part of our lives, who wants us to communicate him in all things, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, the big or the small. He just wants to be with us and communicate, and he wants us to reflect him and glorify him in all we do. A big part of all of that is this thing called prayer. Prayer. 
Such is what we're going to talk about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Prayer is more than an obligation. Prayer is a privilege. Prayer is more than an obligation. We're going to see that Jesus commands us to pray. But it's more than that. It's a privilege that we get to meet with the maker of heaven and earth through Jesus. And we get to converse with him. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week two of this series on discipleship called Growing. It's in this series in which we're looking at seven foundational aspects of what it means to be a disciple, a follower, a committed follower of Jesus Christ, as shown by this gear diagram here put together by our director of disciple-making, Julie Pitch. It it encompasses the seven things that we at Cornwall Church want to hone in on when it comes to discipleship. Last week, Pastor Bob spent a great deal of time talking about loving God and loving others and having Christ at the center of our lives. This week, I get the honor and privilege to to talk about prayer. We're going to be hanging out in one main chunk of Scripture, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Turn to Matthew 6, 1 to 15. Let me set the scene for what's going on. We go back 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, Jesus is 30-ish years old. He's only been in his earthly ministry a few months, his three-year earthly ministry that would take him to the cross. And, And early on in that ministry, he has his first big speaking event, the Sermon on the Mount. We covered that last fall in our Kingdom Culture series, where Jesus calls us us to be kingdom citizens in an upside-down world. So Jesus is about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount when it looks like he's shifting gears. He's talking about, you know, praying for your enemies and loving those who persecute you. And it looks like he's shifting gears to talk about giving and generosity. But what we're going to find out is all of this is tied together. He's going to be talking about humility and hypocrisy, both in generosity and in prayer. All right, so let's look at this. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Remember our main thought. Prayer is more than an obligation. Prayer is a privilege. You guys ready to go? All right. Had you said no, I would still go. Just being honest here. Here we go. Jesus says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. Okay, hang on just a second. Righteousness is a big church word. Righteousness means to be in a right relationship with God. We get that through a relationship through Jesus. And he's saying, don't go out and give to the poor just for show. Here we go. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when, not not if, but when, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. So Jesus is all about speaking against hypocrisy. That's saying one thing and doing another. And the religious leaders of his time were really good at being hypocrites. If they would do anything for the goodness of others, it would be to either control God, thinking that if they did something, then God had to act the way they wanted him to, or they would do it simply for show and to boost up their egos. He says this weird thing in here. He says, uh, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. What does that mean? So back in Jesus' time and even before that, in the nation of Israel, when they would proclaim a time of fasting, a a time of humbling themselves, what they would do is the religious leaders would have them blow trumpets all around the country to announce this time of fasting. And what would happen then is people would start giving to the poor at that time, not at any other time. And they're giving to the poor not because they care about the poor, it's it's because they want God to answer their prayers a specific way, and they know that, hey, I do this thing, then God's going to act. And that upset God, it upset Jesus, because they were doing good deeds to get something rather than please their heavenly Father. 
He continues on, verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what's done in secret, well, he'll reward you. So do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's kind of weird. Let's look at this. I got a, a, a screenshot of a meme. of that. That's what it looks like. You know, you got the selfie while you're giving to someone because you want to post it on Instagram or post it somewhere and say, oh, look how holy I am. Guys, I did this. I was guilty as charged of this big time. Uh, I was the, the Skagit campus pastor when we opened up uh, Team Skagit down there at our, our campus in, in Mount Vernon. And before we opened up, we decided to do a school serve. So we went to the Burlington Edison School District and said, hey, do you guys need help? Because we're just going to show up with a bunch of people and we're going to bless your school. We're going to do painting. We're going to throw beauty bark around. All this stuff. It was a great day, and it really blessed this school, that school that needed it. It was kind of an extreme home makeover. And so at the end of the day, you know, I'm covered with dirt. I'm all sweaty, and I'm feeling good about the day. And I had my shovel, and I did this number, and I took the picture and posted it on Facebook, not to show the great thing that, that God's doing through a church, but show the great things that Kip is all about himself. And what I found was I put it on there for the likes that's what I wanted. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. This whole idea of the left hand knowing what the right hand is doing. When the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, they come together, and then you're starting to do this. And we know that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Jesus says, that's not good. Don't do that. It, you got to have a selfless heart. And it's a truth that we're going to see in our story today, that God blesses a selfless heart, not a selfish heart. God blesses a selfless heart, one that loves God and love, loves others and says has a little bit less of you or me than about ourselves. So with that, Jesus looks like he's shifting gears and he's going to talk about prayer, but it's all tied together because what he's talking about is humility and hypocrisy. So let's keep on going, verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, and when you pray, okay, hang on. He's going to say, when you pray three times. For those of you old school with your Bibles, underline this. Three times he's going to say, when you pray, not if you pray. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, the, the ones that say one thing and do another. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room. Some of your translations say, go into your closets. Close the door. Pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling. Circle that, star that, underline it, highlight it. We're going to come back to it. It's an important word. Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him, have you ever been in a room with a Christ follower who just loves to pray out loud, not because they have a, a really good gift that, to, to help people and guide people closer to Jesus through prayer, but they're doing it just to, to hear themselves you know, speak, hashtag obnoxious. You invite them over to the house you know, and you're having dinner, and it's like, hey, can you make the mistake of saying, hey, can, can you pray for the, the food? And they clear their throats. You know you're in trouble. <clears throat> Oh, Lord, we beseech thee to bless the food of thy bounty. Yes, this hot and ready pizza from Little Caesars. Hot and ready, like the gates of hell. And you're going, oh, my gosh, what, what did I just do? Why did I invite them here? My hot and ready is now cold and sloppy. And, and Jesus is saying, don't do that. That's for show. That's for show. 
And then he says, but when you pray, don't babble. Okay, you guys know I like to geek out, I like to Greek out. Babble, it's a key word and it's an important word here. Uh, it's, It's important because the Jewish audience would really get what Jesus is saying. The Greek word is batalagayo, batalagayo. Say it with me, batalagayo. Yeah, thanks for three of you for doing that. Participation is the mother of learning. Batalagayo, it's a cool word because what it means is just to, to babble, to, to, to have mindless words that mean nothing. The, the word has two origins that, that biblical scholars can't figure out. One of them is there was a guy in Jesus' time named King Battus. He was a Cyrene king, and he had a really bad stuttering problem. So when he would talk to all of his, his people, his messages would take hours upon hours because they were long and painful. He was babbling. He was batalagayo. Another origin of the word is from a, a poet in Jesus' time named Battus. Now, Battus would write long and painful and long poems. So when he says, don't be babbling, the Jewish people would get it. Don't babble. It's not good. So he says, if you want a reward from your Father in heaven, don't be worried about what people say. In fact, go to your prayer closet. Go into a private place. And that's important because the way we pray in private reveals more about our hearts than the way we pray in public. It's true. The way we pray in private, when it's just us, one-on-one with God the Father, that really shows where our heart is. Guys, I got to tell you, as I said, I, I struggle with prayer. When I pray in public, I kind of freak out. You guys know that I do pretty short prayers. There's a good reason for it because I'm sitting here praying and I'm thinking, oh no, what are they thinking? What if I mix up Jesus and Pastor Bob's name? I did that once. Seriously, we were in a, in a staff meeting, a staff prayer meeting, and I'm sitting there praying. We're, we're all praying, doing the, this thing, and it comes around to my turn, and I'm like, Bob instead of God, and Bob goes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, so I struggle with prayer. I do. I, and I have a prayer closet, though. I do. In fact, I got a picture of my prayer closet. And, and before you say, oh, Kip, you know, you're bragging about whole, how holy you are, I have a prayer closet for several reasons. One, I'm ADHD. But second is this dog, Scarlet the Wonder Dog. She's our dog, yes, and, and she's very holy. You notice how she has her paw on the Bible. They say that all dogs go to heaven. I don't know about that, but this dog's going to heaven because she loves to watch me preach. That's right, when Ron and Sarah are out there singing, she's like, rah, 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 rah. If she could get her paws into the, the keyboard for the chat room, she'd be there. Rah, oh, what's Kip going to say? I've, it, it, she loves to be around me when I'm doing my quiet time. So I come downstairs in the morning, I, that's where I used to do my quiet time, and she put her wet nose right in the center of my Bible because she wants to be with Jesus. I tried to move to the garage. She was right there. She's like, I got to have more of Jesus. This dog loves Jesus. So, so I got my prayer closet. It's a place where I can't be distracted by things. And I think that's what Jesus is saying in that. He's saying, go to your closet. Don't be worried about making a show or anything. Just have you and God the Father together. I just want to sit with you. And then he says something that raises a really good question. Go back to verse 8. He says, do not be like them, the hypocrites, the the religious leaders, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, so if God knows what I need, why do I need to even pray? It's a great question. It's a fair question. 
Several years ago, I read a book uh, by Eugene Peterson. He's one of my heroes. He just passed away a couple years ago. He wrote The Message, you know, the very colloquial translation of the Bible. Just a, a spiritual giant. And his book was called The Pastor. It's a, his memoirs of life as a pastor. And in that book, praise Jesus, he admitted to struggling with prayer too. And I'm reading this going, okay, there's hope for me. If this guy, I mean, this guy is amazing. And he said he was struggling with prayer until he read a book written in 1915 by a guy named Harry Emerson Fosdick. It's called The Meaning of Prayer. It's pretty deep and it's pretty dry, but I got to tell you guys, there were so many nuggets. I tore it apart. I ate it up. And in that book, Fosdick says these words. The man who misses the deep meanings of prayer has not so much refused an obligation. He has robbed himself of, look at this, look at this, life's supreme privilege, friendship with God. Friendship with God, how bizarre. Think about that. El Shaddai, God Almighty, wants to have a friendship with you and me. We receive Jesus. I don't get how this works. We receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. And now we can converse with God, a loving Father who wants to be in every aspect of our lives. We get to talk with Him as a father to a son or a father to a daughter. And it's amazing. We get to dialogue with God. He wants us to come to him as a loving father, not an, an abusive old man. The Apostle Paul writes about this, Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. Put your thumb in Matthew 6. We're going to come back to it. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. It's so amazing. And, and, and the Apostle Paul says these words, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. That means through Jesus, we're now kids of God. We're, we're his son, we're his daughter. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, Abba is Aramaic for father. It's like, Father, Father. It's like exclamation points all around it. We yell, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So I had a great dad. My dad died about 11 years ago. We got to talk about a lot of different things. And we wouldn't have had a good relationship if the only time I went to talk to my dad was with my, if I needed something. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. It, it, you know, it, when, when God knows what we need, yeah, he, he knows about that, but he wants us to pray, but not because he's a cosmic genie. God wants a relationship a relationship, not a bunch of rituals, not a bunch of battle of babbling. He wants us to come to him as a son or daughter to the living God. And he speaks. Several years ago, I watched a, or did a, a Bible study call, called Experiencing God. It's by Henry Blackaby. Uh, it, it can be fairly dry in some places, but it's pretty powerful too in others. And he said that God can speak in any way he wants. Let's not put him in a box. But there are four primary ways that Blackaby pointed out that he sees God speaking to him, and I found it true in my life too. And those four ways are through Scripture, and we're going to be talking about that in a few weeks. Through Scripture, that's God's Word, that God speaks so greatly through that. It's through circumstances in our lives. It's through godly men and women like y'all. It's through prayer. So scripture, circumstances, godly men and women, prayer. When all of those four things are happening and, and you're trying to walk in God's will, all of those things, four things are going on. Here's God's will and here's you just marching in it. God speaks and he wants that relationship with us. So with that, back to the question, God knows what we want before we ask it. Why do we pray? Because he wants that relationship. 
the pillar of that relationship is prayer. So Jesus says, look guys, don't be like a bunch of hypocrites, whether it's in giving or whether it's in prayer. Don't say one thing and do another. Don't give to make yourself look good. Don't pray to make yourself look good. Do it out of the goodness of your heart. And with that, he shifts into the Lord's prayer. So before we talk about the Lord's prayer, there's some things we got, some caveats I got to throw out there. Because the danger of the Lord's prayer is its familiarity. I mean, so many of us know it. We, we memorize it. I mean, you get ready to go out on the football field. You get ready to go onto the basketball court or whatever the sports event is that you're doing. You say the Lord's Prayer. Getting ready to go into a combat zone. You say the Lord's Prayer. Getting ready to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Say the Lord's Prayer. Being wheeled into the operating room. Say the Lord's Prayer. And that's a great thing to say the Lord's Prayer. But the problem is, is when we use the Lord's Prayer as a good luck charm that we batalagayo, we simply babble it without having meaning behind it. Please memorize the Lord's Prayer. Memorize Scripture, but always have the right heart when you recite that Scripture. Because here's the thing about the Lord's Prayer. It's not so much a prayer to memorize, but a prayer pattern to internalize. It's not so much a prayer to memorize and recite, but a prayer pattern to internalize and live out. So what we're going to do, before we get into the Lord's Prayer, just one last thing. One of my heroes in life, I got a bromance with this guy, Timothy Keller. He's the greatest theologian, I think, of our time. He's really helped for me as a pastor in so many ways theologically. And he wrote an incredible book about prayer called, wait for it, wait for it, here it comes, Prayer. Yeah, the creative bus didn't run over him that day. But it's a great book. It has a lot of nuggets. I, I threw a lot of those nuggets in today's teaching. But he's, he's done so many sermons on prayer. And around 2012, he did a sermon on prayer and, and on the Lord's Prayer that I, he, he said something that really rocked me and I've decided to add it into today's teaching. So when we look at the, the, the pattern of prayer that Jesus gives us, there are four key points out of it. They're gonna be in your sermon notes at the end uh, of the teaching, but if you wanna write them down now as an eager beaver, that's okay. Uh, there's adoration, adoration, acceptance, acceptance, asking, asking, and rebelling, rebelling. That last one's cool. I'd never considered this in the Lord's Prayer. So with that, let's delve into this. Let's go to Matthew 6, verse 9. Let's look at the adoration piece. Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. Hallowed's a big church word. It means holy. It means that God is set apart, that he is God and we are not. That he is the maker of heaven and earth, that he's on the throne and no longer on the cross. And our job is not to dethrone him and try to get up on the throne. Our job is to hang on to that cross and move forward as disciples of Jesus Christ. We adore him for what he does. We adore him that every morning when we, get, we wake up, we have breath. When we wake up, the sun has risen. We, we adore him for all the things he does in our lives, especially when we can't see him at work. So adoration. Verse 10, let's look at acceptance, accepting his will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Underline that, your will be done. Say it with me, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, what we're doing here is we're saying, God, I, I may not understand it, but I accept what you're asking for, of me and for me at this time and in my life. The four toughest words you can say in your life and the four most important words you can say in your life, the four most dangerous words you can say in your life are your will be done. When you got that incredible job opportunity, and, and you know it's a great opportunity, but you also know 
it's not really what God has for you, but, but it's this great opportunity. Your will be done. When you're in the hospice or in the hospital and your loved one is on life support and you know that they're most likely going to pass away and you've been praying and praying, come on, God, just please heal, heal, please. But your will be done. You get that chunk of money and, and you want to spend it on something that probably isn't the wisest thing to do, but you really want to do that and God's saying, come on, I got something better for you and for this. Your will be done. That toxic relationship with that guy or that girl and they keep taking you to places you shouldn't go and you keep being abused and abused and abused some more. And God says, stop. Put up that boundary. I've got so much more for you than this. Your will be done. I don't think we talk enough about the cost of discipleship. Jesus said, if you're going to be a follower of mine, you better calculate the cost because here's what he's going to do. When you say your will be done, what you're saying is, I'll allow my dreams to change for you, Father. Jesus, I'll allow my life to change for you. I'll, I'll go geographical for you and move somewhere else for you. It's your will be done. In matters of my sexuality, in matters of my purity, it's your will be done. The four most dangerous words we can say, yet the four most important words we can say are your will be done. And the beautiful thing about Jesus, I love Jesus so much, how he steps down from the throne and into the dirt with us. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is going to be hammered on that cross. He is gonna, he's going to see the worst that humanity has to offer because God's going to open up all of evil onto Jesus' shoulders. And God's then going to turn his back from him. Jesus knows this is coming. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating drops of blood. And he says, Father, take this cup of suffering from me but not my will, but those four words. Your will be done. We accept that God is under no moral obligation to answer prayers the way we think he should, to do things that, that just make sense to us, but he has a different vantage point. And we may not know why he answers prayers a certain way on this side of eternity, but he calls on us simply to say, your will be done. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Circle that word daily, that's important. We're halfway through the prayer before we get to the good stuff. I mean, I'm all about asking. I can love asking God for stuff. And what, when Jesus says, give us today our daily bread, remember his audience. It's a Jewish audience 2,000 years ago who gets paid at the end of the day, not every other week, not at the end of the month not at the beginning of a project or the end of a project every day. So he's like, give us this day our daily bread. They're paid one denarius, which is a, a day's wage for their work. He's saying, every day, just ask God for what you need today. Warren Wiersbe once said that we pray to God for our needs, not our greeds. Give us today our daily bread. No coincidence that just a handful of verses after that, Jesus starts talking about anxiety and worry, and he ties it to finances. He's like, why are you worrying about tomorrow? Tomorrow's got a whole bunch of junk of its own. It, it, today does too, so stay focused on this day. Give us this day, our daily bread. 
No coincidence that shortly after this, Jesus would say, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. When you pray, just keep asking, seeking, knocking. Don't just go once to God the Father. He's a good heavenly Father. What kind of good heavenly Father is going to give you a snake or a scorpion when you ask, ask for a fish? Give us this day our daily bread. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And God's going to answer one of three ways. He's going to say yes, he's going to say no, or he's going to say wait. And in the words of the great theologian Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. When he says yes, we praise him. We love it when God answers yes. But when he says no, that's where it gets tough. I thank God he said no to so many prayers of mine that I wanted answered yes. And when you're in that waiting period, it's so difficult. That's why he's saying get on your knees, get close to me. So it's not God, wrong for, to ask God for things, but make sure your heart is in the right place. And with that, let's go to verse 12. And we're going to skip verse 13. There's a method to the madness to this. We'll go to 12, 14, and 15. But with that, we're in the asking portion of this prayer pattern. And we're going to talk about what I think is the most important part of today's sermon. And it's on confession and forgiveness. So if you've, you've fallen asleep during this time, please wake up at least for this portion. Then you can go back to sleep. Here we go, verse 12. Forgive us our debts, some of your, your, your translations say sins or trespasses, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Skip to verse 14. For if you've forgiven men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Don't miss this. Don't, verse 15. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Ouch. Let's talk about that. That's important. First of all, let's talk about confession. God is so good about forgiving anything that happens in our life. He wants to forgive. He's full of mercy, grace, and love. And what he wants us to do is come to him with a heart that says, God, I jacked up. It was bad. I'm sorry. I screwed up. Or I've done something so heinous and, and unforgivable. There's no way you can forgive, but please forgive me. It breaks my heart to hear Christ followers say, there's no way God could forgive me of that. That limits God. That's a small God. It breaks my heart to hear someone who hasn't crossed that line of faith saying, I've done something so horrible, Kip, you don't know how bad it is. There's no way God would forgive me of that. God will forgive us of anything. We, we, that, that happens in our lives if we just come to him with an open heart, an open hand, and a repentant heart. So confession's part of this. We're in the asking portion still. We're confessing. And then he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Think about this. The whole passage is all about humility and hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. And what God calls on us to do is to forgive others no matter what. He's not talking about salvation here. He's not saying if, if you don't forgive someone, then I'm not gonna, uh, you're, you're not saved. That's not what he's saying. Otherwise, uh, forgiveness would be yet another set of works that we would have to do to get into God's grace. That's not what he's saying. For those of us who follow Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, what he is saying is, isn't it hypocritical that I've forgiven you of all of your sins, but you can't forgive someone else? And it doesn't require that other person to say they're sorry. You see, that's about reconciliation. You know, we forgive in our time, God reconciles in his reconciliation. That's another sermon another time. This is just about straight-up forgiveness of anyone or maybe an organization, maybe a church. I don't know who has done something to you. Peter would say to Jesus, how many times do I forgive? Seven times? And he's thinking, yeah, I nailed that one, Messiah. 
And Jesus says, no, man, Mm -mm. 70 times seven. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive again, and here's why. It's no coincidence that just a handful of verses later, two-thirds of the way through this sermon, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse, verse 1, judge not lest you be judged. And he, he's not saying don't judge others. He's not saying don't make judgment calls during the day. He's saying don't look down on others and think you're superior. And that's what happens when we refuse to forgive someone. We're saying... What you did to me was so horrible. Yes, it was, and I'm never going to forgive you because I'm better than you. If you want forgiveness, you need to pause and remember that you and I are both sinners saved by grace, that we need forgiveness. And God's saying, just come to me and forgive. And what I found in my life, guys, this is probably the most important thing, nugget I've found as a Christ follower in my life is when you forgive, even when they don't come to you and ask for forgiveness, there's this weight taken off of your shoulders. Those people who have hurt you years ago, who may even be dead, forgive them. Don't let the enemy have a grip on your heart with unforgiveness. So forgive. And you might not be at a point where you can do that. So maybe your prayer should be, God, help me forgive this person as you've forgiven me. Your will be done. Back to verse 13. Here's a reason why I moved verse 13 to the end of the teaching today. Because usually we stop at verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we skip over that last point of if you do not forgive the sins of others. It's all tied together. So he says, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. Okay, so this does not mean that God tempts us. God will not tempt us. In, in uh, James chapter 1, uh, James writes that, that God does not tempt us. He will test us, though. But just look at Jesus. Jesus uh, goes into the water, comes out of the, the Jordan River. Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. God himself, through the Holy Spirit, leads Jesus out into the desert for 40 days to be tested without food and water. And then Satan shows up, and Satan tempts Jesus. What we're, we're saying here, when we say, lead us not into temptation, we're asking God to guide us so we don't get out of his will and do something stupid. But the beautiful thing about God is that when that happens and we do st- something stupid, we can come to him and say, please, forgive me, Jesus, forgive me. And we forgive others as he has forgiven us. But then here's the rebelling piece that's just so amazing. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Think about this. Every evil thing that's out there in this world, the sin of racism, inequality, injustice, places of hatred, anything that's going on in our lives where there's ugliness, war, famine, poverty, sex trafficking, name the evil thing that's out there. I guarantee you there's a spiritual force of darkness that is propelling it. And what God gives us the authority to do in prayer is to get down on our knees and launch angelic artillery against it. We launch against the evil of this world. We have a part to play in that, not only with our actions, but with our words that come from our heart. That's what rebelling against the evil of the world is. And as I look at this whole prayer, this amazing prayer, as I look at this passage, and specifically the Lord's Prayer, I think it's more of the disciples' prayer that he gives us. It's a disciples' prayer, a prayer for us. 
We adore God, adore him for who he is. He is God, we are not. We accept his will in our lives in the toughest times and in the best of times. We keep asking, we keep seeking, we keep knocking, know that he's going to say yes, no, or wait. And then we ask him to guide us, keep us into his will, keep us away from temptation, and we rebel against the ugliness of this world. It's an honor and a privilege that we get to do that. And when you look at this prayer, you look at everything with this prayer, you can see it's more of a prayer pattern to internalize rather than a prayer to simply memorize and recite. Let me wrap this up. Go back with me to South Korea 2009. My friend Jim Meredith, uh, as I said, Jim's 90 years young at this time. He's just a hero of mine. I love this guy. When he came out to South Korea, at our house in Seoul, we were battling a bamboo crop that was pretty rough. If any of you have dealt with bamboo, the roots go way down deep. And if, they're around, if it's around your house, it can get into the plumbing and things like that. So you're trying to pull it out and it will destroy your house. And so being a geek, an academic geek, I'm like, well, I'm going to look up what bamboo is before I try to take it out of the house. I couldn't get it out from around the house. And here's the reason why. When you plant bamboo, you've got this field, you've got this area, and you throw seeds in the area. And you just start watering and watering and watering. You do that for three, four, five years. And you don't see anything happening above the surface. Don't miss this. Everything is going on beneath the surface. The bamboo's growing deeper and deeper and deeper and getting deeper roots. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, like three, four, five years later, you're going to see this crop pop up that's like 90 feet tall. It's incredible how that works. And now the bamboo can weather the storms of life because its roots are so deep. And isn't that us when it comes to prayer? It's that time in the prayer closet, that time when you're wanting to just yell at God and be angry with God and say, why God, why, but, say, but, but instead say, you know what, God, I don't get this. I am angry, but your will be done. It's those times when you adore him, when the rest of the world says, curse God and die. Those times when you just keep asking and asking and asking and seeking and knocking and God saying, Wait. And it's those times when you're rebelling against the evil of this world because your heart breaks for what you see, the division around you. That's the depth that you get through prayer. And all of a sudden, you're like my friend Jim, who's 90 years young and a prayer giant, a spiritual giant. So I want to give you guys a challenge. Here's your challenge this week. For those of you who have a great prayer life, you pray every day, uh, you're, you, however you pray, and it's, it's, it's good, you're solid, that's, that's amazing. For those of you who do not have a prayer life or your prayer life uh, used to be like mine where you just go and ask when you need, I want you to do this. I call it 15 by 7, 15 by 7, 15 minutes a day for seven days. I want you to go somewhere and just get alone with God. Try this prayer pattern, okay, and it's not a formula, it's not, but it's just a way to really gather your thoughts, to pray to a heavenly father. You adore him, accept him, you ask, you rebel against evil. Pray to a heavenly father, not an impersonal force. Pray to a God who knows your needs and wants to, who knows what you need and has the right to veto what you may want.
pray to a heavenly father that has, an, has a vantage on life that you and I can't understand and can't see. So he's going to be moving in a certain way and say, your will be done. Pray. Don't demand. Listen. Don't battle a Don't babble. Simply come to God and pray. What a privilege it is that we have the Lord Jesus in prayer.